0: Good morning. It is good to be back and good to see everybody here. Um, we are in part two of a series called You're Not Far. Um, we've t- taken a, a week off last week while I was on vacation, and um, I'm going to give you a quick refresh just kind of get everybody up to speed, and then we'll dive into where we want to go today. This is a story uh, that should have never survived. Really, it should have never made its way out of Rome, and it's the story of Jesus of Nazareth, it's, it's really his story told to us by one of his most famous uh, apostles or disciples, um, Simon Peter. We know him as Peter, and Peter tells his story later to his traveling companion, John Mark. And this comes to us from John Mark. Uh, really, you, you kind of get the, the feeling as, as this is happening that John Mark is, has heard this story a thousand times. He's kind of traveled around with Peter. He's heard Peter tell this over and over and over again. And at this point in Peter's life, he's been arrested. He's in Nero's Rome. And he doesn't know this yet, but he'll, he won't make it out of Rome. His life will end there. And, and Mark's sitting with John in Rome, and it's like, Peter, you've you got to tell me the story one more time. I know we've heard it a hundred times, and, and I could probably recite them by heart. But I, I want to get this story down one more time. It's, it's that important, Peter. And it's not just for me and for this generation. Your story is so important. It should be for every generation. And you're not telling it to the, an audience of many. You're telling it to me. You tell me your story one more time and let me write it down. And that's what Peter does. He begins to to recount and tell his story, and it comes to us as the gospel of Mark. We are are in a kind of a a deep dive into the gospel of Mark. This first century document uh, was later included in the the Bible, but what what I want you to kind of wrap your minds around a little bit is that as we're reading through Scripture, we're going to read through a lot of Scripture this morning, I don't want you to hear me reading the Bible because when Mark was kind of documenting the life of Peter, Mark wasn't writing the Bible. The Bible would come around later. Mark's writing the first-hand accounts, eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, of the conversations and the stories and the teachings. Mark's putting all of this together that would later be kind of passed around and rewritten and copied and made its way around the known kingdom and the churches with Paul's letters. And then, you know, a few hundred years later, it would be collected with the Old Testament and bound together in a book that's called the Bible. But Mark wasn't writing the Bible. And the reason I'm making kind of a point of that now is because for some of you, uh, the Bible might be a non-starter, depending on where you are in faith, or maybe someone just dragged you here this morning to get you out of the house, because it's been like a year and a half of you being in the house, and you really don't know why you're here, and someone's talking about the Bible, and you're going to say, if you're going to go like reference the Bible, I don't really care, because here's what I kind of feel about the Bible. I want you to know I get all that, and I understand that. We're not talking about stuff that just happened in the Bible. We are talking about stuff that happened from one man's eyewitness accounts. He lived, he experienced, he traveled, he spent time with, and it was so important for him that for the next 30 years after his Savior, his rabbi, his friend died, he traveled around telling these stories over and over and over again. And then he documented it one more time to his friend John Mark. And that, that story, that gospel, made its way around the kingdom and was later compiled into what we call the Bible. So, so don't misunderstand this. Mark wasn't writing the Bible. Mark was documenting Peter's experience with Jesus. And that's what I want you to know. Well, I want you to hear these words coming from Peter because you, you may have questions and you may have doubts and you may not, not even be able to kind of wrap your mind around uh, uh, faith and, and uh, a personal God and that God forgives. But I think if Peter were here, he'd say, just, just hang with me because I was there. I was like you. I had the same doubts. I had the same concerns. I had the same questions. But I met Jesus. And my life changed forever. And the same could be true of you. So for now, Peter and Mark, they're together, they're in Rome, and Peter is going to start his story off with a conclusion. Say, all right, Peter, lay it on me, Like, give me everything, I don't want to miss a detail. Peter says, here's what I want you to know, big picture, the beginning, Peter says, the beginning, and this is the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And we don't even make it one verse in, in, into the gospel before you have to take a step back and, and, and really question Peter. Peter, really, you believe that the guy you saw arrested and tortured and crucified and put in a tomb, you really believe he's the son of God? And you would say, yes, because three days after I witnessed all that, I then had lunch with him on the beach. I, I know it sounds outrageous. I know it sounds like a farce. But I believe that my friend, that my rabbi is the Messiah, the son of God. And that as Jesus began to travel around, as Jesus began to, to, to kind of move around and teach, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. And what's the good news of God? I mean, if, if we're like j- just kind of church people and we kind of grew up in church and we had Sunday school experience, if I were to say, what's the good news? You, we would all have a very similar answer. Jesus came to earth and he died for our sins. And if we believe in him, we'll make it to heaven and not hell. And if you said that answer to Peter, Peter would say, no, 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 not yet. That, that, none of that has happened yet. That's, that's way later. Jesus ha- hasn't died. He hasn't been arrested. He hasn't been crucified. There, there's no resurrection. Like, like you've moved past that. That's, that's not the good news. Jesus is starting his ministry, and he's starting to talk. And he says, here, I want everyone to know this good news. And what's the good news? We hit this so many times last week. We're going to hit it so many times today. By the end of this series, you're going to know it through and through what the good news is. Jesus said, the time has come. The time that you've been waiting for, that your ancestors have been waiting for, hundreds, thousands of years, everybody has been anticipating everything that's come before, all the the, the pagan cultures and the Jewish culture. Everything up to this point has been been waiting and, and yearning for this thing to happen. Jesus said that thing, that time is now. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. And when we get to this part, it's, what does he mean by the kingdom of God? It's like, like the kingship, right? The, the, the authority, the rule, the reign, like all that has to do with the king. It, it has come because the king has come to town, that God would love us so much that he would send his only son as his representative into the world. The king has come. The time has come. The kingdom has come near because the king is in town. And what's the king going to do? He's going he's to reverse the order of things. As We're going to see this play out a little today, and it's going to get a little, a little crazy as the story continues to go on. Jesus comes, and he begins to flip the world, the, the, the script, like how we've done religion and faith. He's going to flip it upside down and completely reverse the order of everything. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. And what's our reaction? What should our reaction be? Jesus said, well, here's what everybody's reaction should, should be. Repent and believe that good news. When you hear it, when you realize the time has come, the kingdom is near, Jesus said there's only one reaction for us, to repent and to believe. And repent in this word is, is to kind of turn in the direction of. It's not that the, we kind of wrap our minds around, you know, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I'm sorry. No, it's, Jesus said it's bigger than that. What I want you to do is stop living in this old way and stop, stop kind of having the worldview of this old worldview. I want you to, to shift and turn in, in, in the direction of it, in the face of this, this new king that has come, this new kingdom that's being established. The time has come. The kingdom is near. Move from the old to the new. And that's what Jesus spends his ministry doing introducing the new. And we're going to see it, it kind of, it creates this, this turmoil in, in, in his disciples. It creates turmoil in the community. It creates turmoil in the religious system. As Jesus says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. I want you to shift focus. He begins to turn everything in this direction. And it creates a lot of, of complications for the people that are following him. What was the first century response to this? Peter tells us, the people, everyone who heard the story, they were utterly amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. There was something different about this man, Jesus. And as he continued to teach, news about him spread everywhere. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Now, last time what we showed you this map, and we're going we're to show you this map again, because a lot of what Peter talks about is kind of based geographically. So <clears throat> we said, here's where Jerusalem, here's kind of the epicenter of this community, and here over here is a. Uh, the black, uh, sorry, I was going to say the Black Sea. That's the Dead Sea. And there's the, the Jordan River. Up here is the Sea of Galilee. This is where, where a lot of Jesus' ministry starts. Somewhere over here is where John baptized people. So you, you get this idea that Jesus kind of went between these two places when he did his ministry. But when the story starts, where Peter starts, it happens almost all up here in this region of Galilee. Because Peter was a Galilean. Jesus starts his ministry. He begins by, by kind of recruiting people on board, by, by building a team, if you will. And recruiting his disciples, and he recruits Peter up in this area of Galilee, up where word starts to spread as Jesus begins to teach about the good news. But Peter says, and we're going we're gonna to hit on this throughout this message today, we're gonna, I'm going to kind of give you them quickly, and then we're going to walk through the stories that kind of illustrate this. Peter kind of introduces us to these three uh, obstacles, if you will, that Jesus immediately faces and immediately tears down. Like, we're, we're not even going to make it out of chapter 2 of Mark's, of Mark's gospel, Peter's story, before you see that Jesus came with very clear intentions to change from the old to the new. And what he does is he immediately sees three things, and he begins to rip them down. And there are three things that you may have been familiar with even in our church, and in, in, in our church like globally, not just, hopefully, not in Journey Church, but in the church globally, because what's interesting is that Jesus came to change this, and then we immediately rushed back to it. Here are three things that Jesus immediately attacked, Peter says. The first thing he did is he ignored certain religious protocols. He, He just completely ignored the way the system was and began to do something completely different, and it created turmoil. He claimed to have authority to forgive sin, which set him apart from anyone else who ever lived on planet Earth. No one had ever done anything like this. And then the last, he was uncomfortably comfortable with unrepentant sinners. Jesus saw these things as obstacles to God, and he said, I've got to tear this down to create a new way to my Father. What's interesting is that as quickly as he did this in his ministry, years later, the church would come back and reinstitute and kind of re-put up these obstacles. For many of you, that might be your story. That might be why you were kind of bumped out of church, or you left church, or maybe you're sitting at home because you said to yourself, you'll never go to church again because you, you ran into one of these obstacles, whether it, it was, you know, we got to dress a certain way when we come to church, or we all have to believe or act a certain way, or, you know, it, it just, you couldn't wrap your mind around it. They said that I have to, I have to do this, or I have, I have to be a part of this, and I really don't understand, like, that doesn't mean anything to anything or anything to anyone. Why would I have to do that? And you just continue to bump into this religious wall, these, these obstacles that Jesus had torn down, but we put back up as we continued to do church. And those obstacles have kept people out. But as we're going to see at the end of today's message, that was never Jesus' intention. Jesus' intention from the very beginning was to open the doors and invite people in. And if that's your story, if you're sitting at home or you're sitting here, and that's your story because you ran into one of these obstacles, what you need to know is that is not how Jesus intended faith to be. That's not Jesus' faith. That's not Peter's faith. We said this in part one of this series, that if, if your time in Christianity and Christian faith are following Jesus, if you would say it's not good, then you haven't met the real version. You haven't met Peter's version of good. Peter would say the good news faith, it's good, and it should bring life. And if you your experience was anything opposite, maybe it's because you ran into one of those obstacles, that Jesus spent his ministry, his time, tearing down. And maybe it was a church. We should assess ourselves again and make sure that we haven't reinstituted the obstacles that Jesus started his ministry by tearing down. The story goes on. Peter says, so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. And we know what he was teaching, right? What did Jesus teach everywhere he went? That that same thing. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. And believe the good news. He traveled around teaching and preaching in Galilee, Galilee rather in the synagogues, driving out demons. And then a man with leprosy comes to him. A man with leprosy, and leprosy is this skin disease. And you probably have heard of it or read of it. It's not really common in in our culture, in our society anymore. But in this society, any kind of skin disorder, skin discoloration, people would like freak out about. So they didn't diagnose leprosy. Okay, you have leprosy. You need to stand over there. If you had a skin irritation, you were considered a leper, and you were just immediately moved out of society. If you healed and you didn't have leprosy, great. You can be made clean and come back in. If you didn't, stay out there until you die and you're just just—you're you're done. It was almost like you get this idea that somebody who had leprosy, they were kind of pushed out of society and they couldn't really engage. It's like they were kind of hung between, between heaven and earth. They, they, they stood on the outside and they could, they could see life happen, but they couldn't participate in life. They could see their, their families move on. right? Somebody else would raise their kids. Their, their, their husbands would, would you know, find a, a new wife, or their wives would find new husbands, and their kids would be raised by other people. Life continued to happen, but they were on the outside looking in, almost hung between heaven and earth. They couldn't move on, they couldn't die, and they couldn't live. And maybe for some of you, that's how you felt. Maybe that's what you would say the last few years of your life were like. Just hung between heaven and earth. Watching life go by, but never really being able to participate in it. Maybe because of of something you did. Maybe it was because of something that happened to you. Maybe it was because of something you experienced. But here you are, hung between heaven and earth. Not able to participate. Watching life pass by. Wishing perhaps that you could be a part of it. But having no chance. That's what it was like for somebody who had leprosy. They were kicked out of their society. They were kicked out of their homes. They were ripped away from their families, sent out to another community. No one touched them. No one went near them. And if you got better, you could do uh, this ritual to be back of society. And if you didn't, good luck. So this man with leprosy, he comes to Jesus, and he begs him on his knees. And I love this. This is what he says to Jesus. If you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And this is the perfect version of Christian faith. This is what this man's saying. He's confident that Jesus can, and he's hopeful that Jesus will. Says, I'm not really sure if you're going to do it, but, but I believe, I have total confidence, I have absolute like faith that you can do this. Will you? No one else will touch me. No one else will see me. No one one else can offer me any hope. I believe you can. Will you? That's perfect faith. Jesus, I believe you can do it. And I'm hopeful that you will. And Jesus' response to this man, at first, it, it's kind of jarring. As a matter of fact, it's so jarring that over the centuries, scribes would try to change this part of Mark's gospel. It, actually, the word that, that Peter uses when he's telling his story to Mark, you almost have to wonder that, that Mark kind of picked the pen up for a minute, right? Maybe it was a quill, whatever it was. Like, really? Peter, you really want to say that? And like, No, I'm telling you. I, I know it sounds off, but this was Jesus' reaction. He uses this, this, this word to describe Jesus' emotional response to this man. So much so that, again, scribes tried to rewrite it. But in your English translations, in old manuscripts we have it, and some of the new translations, they've gone back to it. Here's how Jesus responded to a man who had perfect faith. Jesus, if you're willing, you can heal me. And Jesus was indignant. You know what indignant is? It's like viscerally angry. It's like there's all this emotion, and he is furious that this man would come to him begging for, for, begging for, for, for healing. Jesus, I know you're able to. Would you do it? And Jesus is furious? Is he angry at the man? No. He's furious with the situation. He's furious that this man's life has been tormented and ripped apart by a disease. And he's furious at the social taboos, that not only he's been ripped apart by the disease, but he was never allowed to be back uh, as a part of society. He's indignant at this man's situation. And then he does something that... I guess we would expect Jesus to do now knowing the story. but in this time, nobody expects him to do this. As a matter of fact, as he's about to do what he's about to do, you, I, I would imagine being one of the, the four guys who've already been called, right? There's, there's Peter and, and, and James and John, and, and they're kind of standing around, and they're watching Jesus do this, and Andrew's with them, and, and Jesus is about to do this next thing. You almost imagine that they, like, reach out to Jesus. No, 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 no. Because after Jesus was indignant, he reached out his hand, Jesus, you can't do this. Do you know what leprosy is? Do you know what this is going to do to you? I I mean, I I know you're Jesus, and I've already seen you do some crazy things, but but if you do this, you now have to go, and you have to to go get get cleansed, and you have to perform a ritual, you have to travel to Jerusalem. It's like a seven-day journey. Jesus, don't do this. But he reached out his hand. I can imagine Peter telling Martha this. I'll never forget this. He touched the man. He touched the leper. Why would Jesus do this? See, Jesus wasn't concerned about the purity laws, and he wasn't, he wasn't like, preoccupied with, with everybody else's notions about how we need to act and live and all these social taboos. And, and in this culture, we think everything today is political. Everything in this culture what was, was political and ritual and religious, and Jesus is just kind of like staring it in the face and moving right past it. You can't do this. But he does. And to be honest, if you're one of his his disciples, if you're one of the onlookers, I'm imagining, even though it's breaking every social taboo, it's a little bit refreshing. Someone's finally willing to, to do something? He reached out his hand, and he touched the man. And he says to the man, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And if that wasn't amazing enough, Jesus th- then says to the man, he, he gives him a strong warning. He sent him at once with a strong warning. and this Greek word for strong warning, there's like a lot of emotion behind this. You almost get like Jesus had to drive the point home. Don't tell anyone. Don't, don't go out, don't tell people. But what did this guy do? I mean, exactly what you and I would do if we were just healed of a life-altering disease, right? He went and he told everyone Everybody. Jesus like, don't do it. Don't go. Here's what I want you to do, though. I, I want you to go. But I want you to do something that, that's gonna, gonna set me up for this conflict later on. He doesn't actually say that, but this is what he does. He says, here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to go and, and I want you to, to, to do this next step. That is, is part of a ritual, it's part of the religious system, it's part of, of what you would have to do if somebody touched you and you were healed of a disease or healed of leprosy. He says, But go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded back in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 5. Moses kind of outlined all of the rituals and all of the commands, everything that we would have to do if, if we had leprosy and we were eventually healed of leprosy. I want you to go and I want you to offer sacrifices that Moses commanded you for your cleansing as a testimony to them. And we're going to jump back to the maps. So keep this in mind now. They're up here in Galilee. I want you to travel, and I want you to find a priest. I, I want you to perform the, the, the religious duties. As a matter of fact, you may have to make, make your way all the way down here to Jerusalem, a seven-day journey. That's what I want you to do. Travel the seven days down to Jerusalem, show the priest to perform the rituals so that they can see, and it would be a testimony to them of who I am and what I'm doing. And now Peter, as he's telling this story, you can almost imagine he's thinking in this moment, Jesus, <clears throat> why would you tell him to honor the laws of Moses? If he's going to honor the laws of Moses, shouldn't you? And in this part of, of Scripture, of the Old Testament text, Moses doesn't just outline somebody who has leprosy, but he outlines what the rules are for somebody who touches somebody with leprosy. He would have to go, and he'd have to offer a sin offering. And, and Peter's thinking, you're telling him to go, but we should go. You should make the journey, and you should have to offer a sin offering. But he's like, yeah, 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 I'm not going. No, no, we're not going down there. That Those rules maybe don't apply to me. We're not doing that. We've got something else to do. But what is beginning to become painfully obvious to Peter is that this this old way is beginning to die and crumble. It's beginning to fade. And this new way that Jesus is offering is beginning to come clear. And it doesn't look like anything we've ever had before. Of course, Healing a man with leprosy, never been done before. Word spreads like wildfire. Jesus could no longer just enter into villages or towns quietly. Everywhere he went, Peter actually tells us this. He says, yet people, they still came to him from everywhere. Even though he broke their religious laws, even though he broke their rituals, even though he wasn't operating like like the teachers operated, they still gathered from everywhere to hear what he had to say. And then Jesus makes his way up to the town of Capernaum, and we just showed that on the map that's right around Galilee he makes his way there. This is like one of the bigger cities. This is where you went if you had to do like grocery shopping. So maybe him and his guys were out of food and they needed to go stock up on supplies. We don't really know, but we know that they make their way into this large city. And as they're making their way into this large city, crowds gathered. What's really interesting about Peter's account of the story of Jesus is that in every chapter, except I think for two, in every chapter in the book of Mark, the word crowd is mentioned. Peter's very clear that everywhere Jesus went, no matter how much he was tearing down this, this old religious way of doing things, the, 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 the religious rules, the political rules, all of that, no matter how much he did that, crowds continued to gather, crowds continued to follow. They wanted to know what was so different and so mysterious about this man, Jesus. So they make their way into Capernaum. They gathered in such large numbers in this house. Keep in mind, in a house that there was no room left in the house, not even room outside the door. And he preached the word to them. What did he preach? The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. It's something Jesus would teach over and over and over. And every message you read in the Gospels, and when you read through the four accounts of Jesus' life, every message he read, everything he says, is in some way connected back to this. The time has come. The old pathway, passed away. This new thing I'm introducing, this new way of living, this, this new covenant is how I want you to live. Repent and believe the good news. Make sure you're a part of this new thing I'm doing. They gather in the house. There's no room in the house. There's, there's the streets filling up. There's no room. People are just pushing in to hear Jesus. And he's teaching and he's preaching and he's teaching and he's preaching. And some men come. And they bring a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And if you grew up in church, I'm sure you've heard the story. Sunday school teachers and in kids' theaters love this story because it's so visual, right? They're bringing this man in at a cot. There's four guys, one on each corner, and you kind of get the idea. They're pushing their way through the crowd, and the crowd's like, "Shh!" You hear a pin drop. They just want to hear every word that Jesus says. And he's preaching and he's teaching and he's preaching and he's teaching. Like, how do we get this guy to Jesus? There's no room in the house. There's no room around the house. They, they kind of break in they sneak up on, on the guys if you know how this goes right since they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd Jesus is teaching Jesus is preaching and and, and he's, he's teaching and he's preaching and, and and it's kind of dark in the room because they're inside the house and light really isn't shining through and and as he's teaching and preaching, Something starts to crumble and dust starts coming down and pieces of, of, of wood or clay, they begin to fall to the floor and they look up and, and literally in one of the Gospels it says this is an expensive house. They, have, they had a tile roof. They're ripping up pieces of the roof. They're making a hole. They're digging away to get this man before Jesus. They're opening up the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. And Peter doesn't tell us this, but when I read this story, I, I want to know because now I'm a homeowner. Where was the homeowner? Right? Like, like, at what point is this guy like sitting back like, yeah, that's good. I needed a sunlight. Like, no, I, I, just, I, I can't. I, Peter leaves it out. Maybe it wasn't important to the story, but I just imagine if it's my house, I'm like throwing cans or pieces of whatever I could find. Like, knock it off. They rip this guy's roof open and they lower him down on a mat before Jesus as he's teaching and he's preaching and he's just, he's just going right along. The room's dark. I mean, imagine being there. The room's dark, and, and you're just struggling to see Jesus because it's, it's a dark house, and it's enclosed, and the light's behind you. And then rays of, rays of light start shining in, and people are kind of squinting to see because their eyes are adjusting to the light. And a man is lowered before Jesus. And then Peter tells us, I love this, <clears throat> when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw, like, how do you see faith? really? How do you see faith? Jesus saw their faith the same way he did with a man with leprosy. Jesus, we believe you can. We believe you can so much. We are ripping open another man's house and lowering this guy down before you. The question is, will you? When Jesus saw their faith, he looks down at the paralyzed man. And he says to them, and before I get to this, you have to imagine, everybody is primed for another healing. The story of Jesus healing the leper had just happened. They're like, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. It's like the show, right? It's it's the climax of the movie. This is exactly the part we've wanted to see. Here it is. But Peter includes the story because there's a little bit of a twist. Jesus sees the paralyzed man. He says this to him, son, your sins are forgiven. To which the crowd just kind of, uh, no mortal man can forgive sins. To which I'm sure the paralyzed man was like, Jesus, that is not why I came. (laughs) Like, great, thank you. But if you haven't noticed, my legs don't work. Son, your sins are forgiven. And what Jesus is doing is taking another opportunity to show his authority that the time had truly come and the kingdom of God has come near, what's your response going to be? Peter tells us, we we didn't expect this. This was was too radical. Like, nobody can do this. As a matter of fact, the audience wasn't even sure they could believe. Peter says that there were some men in the audience, some of the religious teachers were there and they were listening to Jesus. Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there listening to him. And they began to think to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? Who has the authority to do this? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. And he says to them, before we jump into that, i got to imagine, at this moment, Peter's like making a note to himself. Like, okay, Jesus can heal a man with leprosy, he can cast out demons, and he can read minds. Got to be really careful around, around, around this guy, Jesus, right? Like, this is weird. Jesus knows what they're thinking in their hearts. And he responds right to them. And I just imagine for a moment, he, he wants people to believe. He's not trying to push people out. He's kind of setting the hook and baiting them. Would you believe like they believe? He smiles at his audience. Why are you thinking these things? I'm sure his audience is like, I, I was thinking, what are you talking about? I didn't think, I, I didn't say a thing, Jesus. No, no, I know. Why are you thinking these things? Why don't you believe? He smiles and he continues. Which is easier? I mean, really, this isn't a trick question. This is a simple question. Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, to which I've already said, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? I mean, really, the answer is easy. But, but it's an answer you have to wrestle with. It's an answer the audience has to wrestle with. It's an answer the religious leaders have to answer with. Which one's easier? It, which is easier to say this man? Your sins are forgiven, which really requires, requires no evidence. It requires nothing further to take place. Or to say, get up and take your mat and walk what you have to remember, in this, in this first century society, there was this correlation. It really, it, it didn't even extend in this Jewish society. In, in every society in the first century, and in ancient cultures, this, in pagan religions, there was this like one-to-one correlation with sin, with doing something wrong, and sickness. <clears throat> they really believed that if you did something wrong, you, you, you sinned, that you would eventually become sick. This is why, you know, your child was born deaf or why something bad happened to you later in your life. Clearly, you did something wrong. They believed this in Jewish culture, and they believed it in, in ancient cultures if, or pagan cultures. If you didn't appease the gods or offer enough of a sacrifice or enough of an offering, then you could be made sick. Then the gods would punish you. And typically, that was done with sickness and disease. So there was this one-to-one correlation. They believed that this guy had done something wrong, and that's why he's paralyzed. Jesus doesn't buy into it, though. As a matter of fact, later in the Gospels, he says, no, no, I don't think there's any correlation between between sickness and and sin. He would actually, he holds to the Genesis view that when we sinned, sin came into the world and held the door open, and sickness and death walked in right behind it. it. This is a byproduct of sin. This isn't because he sinned. This is because sin is in the world. Sickness and death are in the world. This is why life doesn't seem fair to us. This is why we see wicked people prosper and we see some righteous people get sick and suffer. And it's not fair. And Jesus said, I know it's not fair. That's why I've come to put an end to the sin that opened the door for sickness and death. I'm going to take all of that away from you and offer you something better. But what could he do? I mean, what evidence could he give that he could forgive this man's sins? I mean, what's, what's easier? We know the answer, right? To say your sins are forgiven. But what evidence could he give that the man's sins are forgiven. Except to hit this. to, To take away what they would think is the only reason or really the byproduct of this man's sin. And that Jesus could close the door on sin altogether. What's easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or get up, take your mat, and walk. And then he says this, and he makes his intentions very clear. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, and he's going back to this messianic term, and he's referring to himself in this messianic term that was so offensive to this audience. Who were you to declare yourself the Son of Man? I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So what does he do? He identifies himself as the Messiah. And he says, here's the answer to the question you've been waiting for. You want to know if I have the authority to do this? You want to know if I have the ability to do this? Watch what happens next. So Jesus says to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he did. And the crowd is dreadfully silent. They have never experienced anything like this before. As a matter of fact, not only have they never seen somebody healed like from being paralyzed and get up and going home, but the implications of this, the implications that if Jesus really could do this, could he also forgive sins with a word? And if he could, does that mean that, that everything we've spent our life doing, all of the sacrifices, all of the journey down to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and, and, and kill animals, to somehow atone for our sins, to try and seek some forgiveness from God, does that mean all of that goes away with the word? I mean, if he had the ability to heal him, does he have the ability to forgive him as well? Their worlds are being turned upside down. We read it and we read it like it's just another part of the story because we know the end. This is earth-shattering to this society. This culture has no words for this. Peter has no words for this. It, it, it like dumbfounded him. How? I mean, I've seen you do some incredible things, but to forgive sins with a word. I mean, there, there was no priest involved. There was no sacrifice. There, there was no temple And you imagine the religious leaders that were just questioning, like, who is he to do this? He's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. You have to imagine, at this point, they're even wondering, are you telling us that our system, that our temple system, that the thing that's been existing for thousands of years that God put in place with Moses, are you saying that all that's gone and all that's done? Are you doing away? Are you saying you're more important than that? Jesus would say yes. Because the old is passing away. The new come. The man got up, he took his mat, and he walked out, and Peter wanted to make sure we didn't miss this. Mark, make sure you write this part down. He did it in full view of them all. It's his way of saying fact check me if you don't believe me, because I know this sounds outrageous. If you're going to question this, and I would question it, it wasn't just me. Everybody, the crowds that swarmed the house, the people in the street, the religious leaders, he did it in full view them all. What was the crowd's response? I'm sure the same as Peter's. We have never seen anything like this. Let me ask, ask a question, then we'll get back to the story. Do you ever wonder if God would forgive you? And I, I mean, like really, like do, do you ever wonder that if there's a God out there who would actually forgive you? I mean, they're like a personal God. And we know that Peter believes in this personal God who, who knows your name and, and knows intimate details of your life. Do you believe that God would actually forgive you, that God would love you so much he would send Jesus? And we know the story. But sometimes it's hard for us to, to make it fit for us. We say things that, like, you know, I, that's good for them, and I'm glad they could go, and I'm glad they can get forgiveness, but, but that's not for me. I could never. I could, I, I've done too much. I've, I, I've said too many things. I've done I, too many things. I didn't believe when I should have believed. I, I made promises that I didn't keep, and I should have promised things that, that I, I never came through on. I sinned, and, and, and I did things I, I shouldn't do, and then I didn't do things I should have done. That, that's, that just couldn't be me. Do you, ever, do you ever wonder, could God really forgive? Do, sometimes you, you feel like maybe like that paralyzed man or that leper sitting on the outside of society, looking and wanting to be a part, but thinking, I, I never could. As a matter of fact, if I were to ever be a part, there's so much I'd have to do. Like that leper, I'd have to go and I'd, I'd have to do rituals and perform sacrifices and get, get you know a, 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 a letter signed off by the priest letting me enter back into society. I could never die. Before I ever became, came to church or became a Jesus follower, I have to get my life right. I mean, I've heard that so many times. I've got to get my life right, and then I'll come to Jesus. Peter would say, no, 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 you, you don't understand. That's not how it works. You come to Jesus, and your life begins to get right. As a matter of fact, he says, here's, here's what I, I want to conclude the story. Peter would say. We we talked about the first two things where Jesus kind of ripped down these obstacles. But what he does next, this is just a part that Peter had so much trouble wrestling with and coming to terms with. You ever wonder that God could forgive you? Peter said, I have wondered. And I didn't think it was possible. But I saw it. Because the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Believe the good news. With his account, Peter lays the foundation for the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders that would continue on throughout the rest of Jesus' life and his ministry. As a matter of fact, we're going to get more into that in one of the next uh, segments of this teaching. But here's where we want to conclude the story Jesus healed the leper, healed the paralyzed man. He continues to teach. He's traveling now around the Sea of Galilee, you know, where Peter was, was a fisherman, where, where he, the, the four disciples that were kind of rolling with him, were all, they were all from, they all knew this area. It was common area, common people to them. They're walking along, Peter says. And he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now, how would Mark know Levi's father's name? I mean, really, why would Mark include that? Mark wouldn't know. Mark, this is written like 30 years later. Mark's a Greek. He has no idea what's happening in Capernaum at the time, and he's in Rome with Peter. Why would Mark tell us that this is Levi, the son of Alphaeus? Mark didn't know, but Peter knew because he's from this area. These are his people. There is a good chance Peter knew exactly who Levi was and who Alphaeus was, and he wanted you to know. Besides that, Levi was like a super popular name in like the first, second, third century. So like you would say Levi, and it's like, oh, which Levi? There's like 30 of them. It's like Paul's in our church, right? <laughs> <clears throat> it's Paul, the, you know, the son of, so, yeah, it's, it's Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Peter's like telling Mark the story. He's like, I want you, I want you to know the detail, because what's going to happen next is so incredibly important. He's walking along and he sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. And we've, we've talked about tax collectors before, right? They're like the customs officers of the time. They're basically positioned by the local government and the local government being Rome at this point. They kind of own everything. <clears throat> They're positioned by the local government to collect taxes for the government. But there's no rules on how much tax they can collect. So anybody who's a tax collector can collect as much as they want. And as long as the local government gets, gets their due, they can get as rich as they want collecting as much tax as they want. So you have to imagine, in this society, like they hate tax collectors. They hate Rome. They hate the governor, like Herod Antipas. They hate him because he killed John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is like a folk hero to these people. So this, ha- this guy has like nothing good going for him. He works for Rome, which they, which they hate, the local governor, which they hate. And, and he's a tax collector, which they hate. And worse than that, he's a Jewish tax collector. He's betrayed. He turned his back on his own people. He's getting rich by oppressing his own people. This guy is hated. And I think that's why Peter included the detail. Now, I'm reading between the lines. Peter doesn't say this in Mark. But you get this idea. Peter knows who this guy is, and he can't stand this guy. He had turned his back on his people. He's oppressed them. He is part of the problem. As a matter of fact, he's worse than the problem because he's a Jew who's a part of the problem. Peter can't stand him. Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and he he sees Levi. Levi. And he stops and he stares, and I almost imagine again I'm filling in blanks here, so r- roll with me. This is just good storytelling. <laughs> Jesus kind of stops and he maybe he just stares for a minute. And Peter, you know, being the disciple he is, the, the type A, the loud one, puts his foot in his mouth all the time. He kind of walks up to Jesus and he's like, Yeah, I know, right? Like I, Jesus, I know this guy. I don't know where he went wrong. His dad alpha is such a good guy. Everybody loves him, but Levi, he's just I don't know, man. He's just not good. There's nothing good about him, Jesus. Jesus, in this typical fashion, completely ignores Peter, looks at Levi, and says to Levi exactly what he would say to you and to me Follow me. Hey, you, follow me. And I can imagine Peter's response because I know how Peter feels. I've been there myself. What? Him? Are you serious? Jesus, hold on me anyway. I can't stand you. We've gotten fights before over customs and taxes. Like, give me a second, pulls Jesus. Like, Jesus, like, we had a great day. You've done some amazing things. You, you, you healed that guy with leprosy, and that was awesome, and you touched him. And, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around how you did that and why you didn't get sick and, and why you sent him to do this and we didn't. Like, I, I get that, Jesus. And then you, you, you healed the paralyzed man, and you even said you forgive him of sins. And I still can't get my head around that. That is, like, blowing my mind. It's destroying my world. But this, Jesus, this isn't okay. This guy will ruin your rep. It will irreversibly ruin your reputation. It will destroy you. It- it'll go against all of the religious people because he stands in opposition to them. It'll go against all the working class people because he's robbing from them. Jesus, don't do this. This is lose-lose. If he follows you, it's no good for us. Don't do this, Jesus. Besides, We've already got a really good small group. The other guys here, Jesus, they're just like me. And they like me. And I like them. But nobody likes Levi. Jesus, don't do this. And then maybe Peter's saying, maybe this is just a trick question, because really, is is Levi going to do this? Like, you really think Levi's going to, like, give up? His his source of income, his life, like he's made it pretty good. He's getting rich off our backs. (laughs) Levi's not going to do this. Jesus is just like creating some tension and trying to trick me. But to their horror and disgust, Levi got up and followed. And what's really interesting is that Peter doesn't include any of the other disciples being individually called out by Jesus to to be an apostle. He only gives reference to five. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Levi. And I think the reason he does it is because this was the one. Peter and Andrew, you know, they're brothers. There's James and John, and they're brothers, and they're friends, and we know each other, and they're good guys. But Levi, it's almost like he is running into that obstacle that so many of us have run up against. They can't be a part. They're no good. Do you know what they did? I mean, Jesus, all these other people, we like, they did stuff in their life that we don't know. And really, I mean, a paralyzed guy, like you said you forgive him for his sins, but how much sin could he do? He's paralyzed. Everybody knows what Levi has done. He does it on the corner, in public, every day. And Peter is immediately effaced with some of this, this disruption that Jesus continues to bring about in the community. And he's not really sure he likes it. But Jesus has made it painfully obvious. The kingdom of God has come near. And everybody, everybody was invited to participate in it. Even people like Levi, who betrayed their own people, who got rich off their own people's backs, who gave up their faith. Even people like Peter who would later say, I thought at one point in time that I was worth it, that I was worthwhile, and, and, and Levi was and other people weren't. But later in my life, I would look back and say, no, even me. I, I, I was one of the chiefest of sinners. I denied Jesus when he needed me the most. Even me. I was invited. And I would say, even me. A pastor, a preacher, a guy who knows the Bible backwards and forwards. That's what I'm paid to do, literally. Even me. I, if there's anybody here who doesn't have an excuse, it's me. Yet I, I sin, and I betray, and I lie, and, and I and I, I do things I shouldn't, and I don't do things I should, and I, I make promises that I don't keep, and I should make promises and keep them, and I never do. If anybody here is without excuse, it's me. So James, Andrew, Peter, John, me. We all have a decision to make. Jesus is introducing something brand new. The old way, the religious way, Peter's way is dying. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. What are you going to do? Peter had a choice to make. Is he going to go with Jesus? Is he going to travel with Jesus and, and Levi? Levi? Or is he going to say, Jesus, you know, you pushed me too far. You can go and you can start your own small group with Levi and we'll just do our thing. But we can't go with you there. Or are we going to repent and believe the good news that the kingdom of God is for everyone? This would continue. To collide with Peter and Peter's way and Peter's insecurity and Peter's prejudice and Peter's fear. And it will continue to collide with with my way and my fear and my insecurity and my prejudice. And if you are following Jesus or you decide to follow Jesus, it's going to continue to clash with your way and your fear and your insecurity and your prejudice. But here's the thing. It is the better way. It is the only way forward. And we have a choice. The kingdom of God had come near. The time has come. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to repent and believe the good news? Or are you going to go back to the old way? Jesus would have many more interactions with the religious people. And the story is just getting started. And we'll pick up by there next time in part three of You're Not Far.